Welcome. This is John LaBelle, your host on Visionaries. We're here on PRN. <coughs> Excuse me. PRN.FM. Mondays at 10 a.m. That's Eastern Time. We're totally global because we're the Internet. So it could be any time where you are. And just waiting to come on the air. I was listening to our promos. Is this a cool station or what? Anyway, you can hear our previous shows on visionaries.podbean, P-O-D-B-E-A-N.com. I just, uh, how many of you have read a book recently? <laughs> I, you know, I'm sitting in bed with these books piled up next to my bed, and do I read the book or do I watch a rerun of uh, Big Bang Theory? So I I listen to books, and I've got, oh, maybe about 30 or 40 of them on my phone and a couple hundred of them on my <clears throat> on my laptop. And I just downloaded To Be a Machine, which is a, a journalistic foray into the immortality crowd. I happen to be involved with that. We'll do a future show on that. I'm director of research. I'm going to talk about global warming today, but... With my style of um, free association, it might take a while to get to it. So I, I uh, downloaded To Be a Machine, just started listening to it last night, also listening to Paul Johnson's The Intellectuals. That's 18 hours. Uh, that's a long one. It's the, These books, that, that's from way back. To Be a Machine's a new book. And it's... <laughs> It's about people decided they don't want to die. And uh, what, what, what's this aging thing? I mean, what, what, you know, like sharks don't age. They get bigger. But if you see a big shark, it could be three years old, 30 years old, 80 years old, 100 years old. They don't age. So some creatures don't age. And so what, 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 what gene is causing us to age and how do we turn that off? So here are all these people, you know, like Larry Page and uh, uh, the, the, the guy who founded Oracle, uh, these Silicon Valley billionaires, Peter Thiel, I'll mention him again later, who are starting to get older. You know, they're, they're getting into their 40s, maybe their 50s, and they're noticing these symptoms of aging. So they go to their, their te- biotech friends and say, well, what is this? And they said, well, you know, it's aging. Well, well, well can you turn it off? Well, uh, for a billion dollars. Well, here's a check. <laughs> so so uh, uh, Google started an anti-aging company. Uh, Peter Thiel is funding anti-aging research, uh, et cetera. And what occurred to me was, I just mentioned that our previous shows are on visionaries.podbean.com. One of the people I interviewed a while back is Natasha Vita Moore, and her husband is Max Moore. He's the president of Alcor, which is currently the leading place to get frozen. They don't like to use the word frozen because we want to try to vitrify people. That way there aren't any cracks. 
you know, if you, if, if you freeze a strawberry and you thaw it out, it's like not the way it was when it went in. And that's the problem with the people been frozen. But if you can vitrify tissue, it comes back in perfect shape. So that's where we'll we'll talk about all that in a future show. But the book, uh, To Be a Machine, uh, and that refers to the ultimate way of extending your life is to download yourself into a chip. And that way, uh, you know, nothing should go wrong. And if anything does, you're packed up. <laughs> I asked my students, Do you have, how many people have carbonite or another one? Uh, so, you know, I, I'm double, I try to double it back up. I plug into, uh, I plug into, I use a Max. I plug into Time Machine uh, about once a week. And, you know, these, uh, these external drives are so cheap, 80 bucks for two terabytes or something like that. And they don't need any external power. It used to be, I always got my external drive separated from the power block, you know, the power thing. And I'm afraid if I plug the wrong one in, it'll fry it. So these don't need any power. They're powered off the USB. So you just plug this thing in and it automatically gets caught up on updating any backups. And at the same time, I use Carbonite, which remotely backs up. What if you have a fire in your apartment and everything's gone? And uh, so anyway, the uh, <laughs> if you can download yourself into a chip, you can also back it up, <laughs> which is how these people are thinking. So anyway, uh, Max, the, the book To Be a Machine opens with a letter to Mother Nature from Max Moore saying, thank you for doing a great job but uh, we need some improvements here, <laughs> like getting rid of aging. Anyway, that, that's a long digression. We'll do a show on this in the future. And in the meantime, people think that way are called transhumanists. And the uh, poster person for transhumanism is Natasha Vita Moore. Look her up. And uh, she, uh, you know, whenever there's a conference on transhumanism or whatever, she's there. Anyway, uh, that's some um, digressions. And speaking of Peter Thiel, who's one of the person funding all this, uh, so Peter Thiel <coughs> was um, wrote a book from from zero to one, and he's been speaking about it everywhere, promoting his book. Interesting that I, you know he doesn't need the royalties from his book. You go to you put in anybody's name on Google and then put in net worth. <laughs> so he's apparently worth two plus billion dollars. But uh, it's interesting how many of these people spend a lot of time speaking and a lot of that speaking ends up on YouTube so the rest of us can keep up. I have a, a colleague, a friend, colleague I've known since the fourth grade uh, who is very prominent in technology circles, and he reg he's a regular at TED, T-E-D, right? Technology, entertainment, what is it? T-E-D. Anyway, it's real famous now, and they have all these great speakers, and you can hear all of them on YouTube. So my colleague goes to TED every year, 
And have you heard this? Have you heard that? Yeah, years ago on YouTube. <laughs> so anyway, uh, uh, there are all kinds of conferences out there, and a lot of them these days get recorded. I'm I'm sort of a fan of Book TV, C-SPAN's Book TV, and it's, you know, Saturday, Sunday, the whole weekend. And the great thing about that is that uh, books is where ideas are, right? And, you know, newspapers, you know, ideas first appear in books and then in magazines and then in newspapers. Sort of the reverse of what you would think. You'd think newspapers would get them first because they come out every day. But um, somebody thinks about something for a couple of years and has insight and they put it in a book. And then... <clears throat> They get reduced to a soundbite, but the great thing about book TV is they have a whole hour, typically, to talk about their book, whether it's at a book signing at a bookstore or whether they're being interviewed for three hours. There's a woman, my apologies for not remembering her name, but uh, Gina Collada, who's the science contributor to the New York Times, interviewed a woman who wrote a book about fat. What is it? It's the Natural History of Fat or something like that. And, you know, they were on for three hours just uh, yesterday on Book TV. Look it up. But if you're worried about, you know, like why dieting doesn't work, uh, this woman was a uh, biochemist, and she, you know, had kids and got a bit middle-aged and started putting on a few pounds and struggled with dieting. And she said, you know what? What's going on here? And she researched everything. And so she gathered all the research, put it in this great book. And Gina Claude interviewed her for like three hours. And you just don't get that in, you know, in the sound bites from the news or from, from uh, a brief uh, uh, piece in the newspaper so anyway, for years, I've been annoyed that <clears throat> C-SPAN Books, or Book TV on the weekend, is all about politics. You know, there's some public affairs, but it's mostly about politics. And <clears throat> I think it kind of distorts our, distorts us. You know, politics is important, but it's only one part of who and what we are as a culture, and they don't cover other stuff. So I got a chance to talk to Brian Lamb, who is the founder of um, C-SPAN. And what he did is he got all the cable companies to put up the money. And the idea initially was to cover Congress. So gavel to gavel, everything that happens when Congress is in session is on C-SPAN. And then they were able to add C-SPAN 2 and C-SPAN 3. And so then they did the Senate. <clears throat> and then they do other background things about politics and public affairs. And since Congress is typically not in session on the weekend, that's when they do book TV. And he was at a bookstore in New York doing an event at The Strand, right? Oh, God, it's still there. Um and it keeps expanding. He used to have a sign that said, six miles of books. 
And then one day the sign said eight miles of books. Now it says 18 miles of books. I don't know how they're lining up the books to get 18 miles, but they've got three stories now, four stories. They got the basement, first and second story, and then you go up to the uh, third floor and they have rare books. So <laughs> I've been selling books there. These books I picked up because they were cool in the 60s. They've been sitting around sitting around forever. And so I bring them there. And, uh, you know, sometimes you get really good prices. You can get much more selling them on a books, but then you have to, like, handle it yourself. So they obviously have to mark the books up. But uh, it's a great place to unload books. Anyway, Brian Lamb was there. And I spoke to him about something that he had mentioned on uh, when he appeared on TV. He's not on very much anymore. He's sort of retired and other people have taken over. But he had interviewed somebody who wanted to do a, C a cultural C-SPAN so that it would be not uh, just politics and politics and current affairs, but the whole range of culture. Think about it. Uh, I teach in an architecture school. And <clears throat> so once a week, we have typically a, a prominent or interesting, sometimes they're the same, architect lecture in our Thursday evening lecture series. And, you know, the most important architects out there come to our school and lecture. They go to the other schools as well. And cool. But the photography department at my school has the most important photographers come and lecture, etc. And now imagine Harvard. What must be going on, you know, just to pick on somebody. What must be going on every week at Harvard? And, you know, the sociology department, the political science department, the uh, biology department, the physics department, the literature department, the French literature department, the German literature they all have lecture series. And all that material is lost. You know, it, it, it's all gone. What if it could be recorded and the best of it could be on a cultural C-SPAN? Well, <clears throat> Brian said that, you know, the money just wasn't there. I spoke to some people and, eh, you know, and all of a sudden we don't need it. Um, we have YouTube. Now, uh, you know, there's tens and tens of millions of videos on YouTube, <laughs> including cat, cute cat videos, right? So my my brother-in-law just emailed me, somebody raised a cat with husky dogs. <laughs> this cat thinks it's a husky. So it sleeps curled up with the dogs. It gets walked on a leash. It loves being walked on a leash. My cat is not interested on in being on a leash. We have a plaza downstairs in my apartment complex and uh, we you know put the cat in a harness and bring it down and you know put it in a cat carrier bring it down take it out <laughs> it wants to get back on a cat carrier doesn't like being outside on a harness used to be an outside cat before my wife moved to New York this cat used to uh, prowl around <coughs> the uh, uh, extensive acreage in California bring home friends and stuff and now he's just stuck indoors we let them out in the hall. That's their 
that's their summer place. Anyway, uh, so if there is an interesting lecture in the whatever literature department at Harvard, uh, there's a good chance somebody records it and it ends up on YouTube for the rest of us. So fantastic. Anyway, uh, so I'm flipping through YouTube last night and I come across um, Bert Rutan, B-U-R-T-R-U-T-A-N, The Real Climate Change Data. So I'm sort of interested in this. I wrote a book called The Little Green Book, <laughs> A Guide to Self-Reliant Living in the 80s. Tells you how long ago the book was. <clears throat> but what I did was I went from birth to death, and then I went from the home to the planet and looked at how, <clears throat> in the 80s, become apparent that uh, perhaps one way to look at what was going on is that our life was becoming industrialized, mechanized, and that was a good thing. Um, <clears throat> we had automobiles. We could get around. We had central heat. Um, my grandmother didn't have to go down in the morning and shovel the coal, um, which, you know, is what she did. Jeez, um, my parents did that too when I was a kid. And we had a coal-burning furnace. In, in fact, I, I, when I call, when I first started teaching, I'd be high up in the building. I could look out, and you could see um, black smoke coming out of chimneys as far as the eye could see across Brooklyn. Nobody burns coal anymore. <laughs> it's probably illegal. And nobody even burns oil anymore. You might, I have to uh, admit, I occasionally use a car in New York. And 30 years ago, you'd be driving down a narrow side street and somebody would be an oil truck delivering oil. Well, you aren't going anywhere for 15 minutes. That's about how long it took to deliver the oil. And then they'd uh, pack up the hose and take off and you could continue on your way. That hasn't happened in years. So I guess everybody's burning natural gas. So we see these improvements, but sometime around maybe the 70s, uh, this was no longer an improvement. It started to become too much industrialization. So my book looks at that and looks at how uh, maybe even these new technologies could provide simpler solutions from, again, birth to the planet, looking at natural childbirth to uh, how we die from the home to the planet, um, you know, from solar panels on your home to ways to think about the planet ecologically. And a couple of the things I looked at was the DNA in tropical rainforests. So, you know, the, the thousands of millions of species in tropical rainforests stores all this information, and we were still at it, destroying them to... Uh, to grow crops, and now among the, you know, I'm a big not fan of uh, biodiesel and uh, and um, uh, ethanol in our car. We take corn, which is food, and convert it to alcohol. By the time we're done converting it, we've used more um, fossil fuels than if we had just burned straight 
gasoline, uh, put it in our car, 10 or 15% ethanol, when we fill up, and there are people starving. One interpretation of the Arab Spring, which wasn't so springtime, has led to horrible uh, destabilizations in Libya, Syria, Yemen, was due to the fact of the exploding cost of food. And uh, people started demonstrating in objection, and uh, <laughs> the results have not been have not been pleasant. Anyway, uh, the other thing I looked at was CO two and greenhouse gases. This is already uh, thirty five years ago. So, I don't know, where do we stand today? And so we have the term global warming, and. Um, what is it? 93% of scientists agree that man-made global warming is happening. And so we begin to wonder. Um, we begin to wonder about anything that's called, to coin a phrase, settled science. So we're told that global warming is settled science. Now, it's interesting that I think global warming, man-made global warming, is the only thing in all of science that's settled science. Gravity certainly isn't settled science. The atom isn't settled science. But global warming is. And <clears throat> that means we're not supposed to talk about it. We're not supposed to debate and discuss it. We can only pile on about how terrible things are and how dire everything's going to be. Uh, <laughs> if you want to know how bad things are going to be, stay tuned because prn.fm is a great place for keeping up on the latest. <clears throat> you and uh, so, you know, gravity, uh, well, uh, all of a sudden we understand uh, how does a galaxy work? Well, we have the outward force of the spinning galaxy and the inward force of the gravity. Okay. And we have pictures of uh, thousands of now high-resolution, beautiful pictures of galaxies. We see how they work. Only problem is we do the math and it doesn't work. There's not enough mass to... Uh, when you apply the Newtonian equations, or if you want to use Einstein's uh, general relativity equations, there's not enough mass to exert, to use the Newtonian term force, or Einstein's notion of distortion of space-time, to hold all that mass together. It should be flying apart. So we hypothecate, uh, what is it? <laughs> you know, there's only 10% as much mass as we need. So the other 90% is dark matter. Well, what is dark matter? Dark matter is that which is exerting the gravity that we don't have no idea what it is. Uh, we do know we can't see it. So it exerts gravity, but it doesn't interact with light, whatever it is. Maybe it's some type of uh, obscure subatomic particle, and a lot of them. But anyway, <clears throat> so that's dark matter. Dark energy is another one. Um, so 
with the Big Bang, everything goes flying apart. Okay, and so the universe is expanding, and we've got the redshift, right? So, you know, you recall if you live near a railroad or you're near a highway and a truck or a train goes by and it blasts its horn, it goes, wee So while it's coming toward you, the sound gets higher because the sound waves are being compressed because it's coming toward you. And then as it zips by and now it's going away, the sound waves get attenuated and the sound gets deeper, changes. And so that's called the Doppler effect. And, you know, it's very familiar. And the 1920s was actually a woman, my apologies, I don't remember her name, uh, did the observations, but Hubble, who was the head of the observatory, uh, put them together and got credit with discovering that the universe is expanding. This red shift, the stars, the spectrum from the stars are not what they should be. Um, they're attenuated and the, they are shifted toward the red. In other words, red light has longer wavelengths than blue light, so it's called a red shift. And the stars that are further away are attenuated even more. And so that means that they're moving away even faster. So that's the universe is expanding. And then you do the math and reverse that, and we're expanding from what? And you go back and say, oh, 14 billion years ago, it was a point. <laughs> and then you have the Big Bang. So, okay, but um, how much matter is there in the universe? We're not even sure what that is. <laughs> is it finite or infinite? But is this expansion going to keep going, or does it slow down, and then all the gravity start to pull it back to a big crunch? Well, so is it slowing down enough that it'll come back, or is it going to keep going? And then we have the heat death, you know, until all the particles are infinitely far apart. Uh, think what it'll be like for our descendants, if there are any, uh, billions of years from now, who look out from our solar system, assuming we survive the sun becoming a red giant, but putting that aside, uh, and see no other stars because they're all too far away. And what are they going to think the universe looks like? They have no way of coming up with our beautiful theory of the Big Bang because they won't have the other observations. But anyway, Lo and behold, just a few years ago, we discovered that the rate of acceleration of the stars and galaxies moving away from us is accelerating. Well, that can't be. I mean, the Big Bang was one, one impetus. Ever since then, all that's been acting is gravity, and that should be, if not pulling things back, at least slowing down the rate of expansion. But the rate of expansion has been increasing. We can actually figure out when it started to increase. Uh, what's doing that? Well, <laughs> what's doing that is dark energy. Well, that's just two words. Uh, dark because we have no idea what it is. And energy because it's putting energy into the system that's making expansion increase. Well, 
there's two little wrinkles in our theory of gravity, dark matter and dark energy. So gravity is not settled science. We have no idea what gravity is. We have some working theories, uh, Newtonian theories, that work from the 1600s until 1915, and Einstein's theory that worked until just a few years ago when we got dark energy and dark matter that totally left us in the lurch. So gravity is not settled science. The atom is not settled science. What is the atom? Well, Democritus says, this is, uh, you know, the ancient Greeks, it's this old billiard ball. And then we started uh, having debates about whether it existed at all. We had uh, a notion that, well, it's this uh, pudding, it's this mass of uh, negative charge uh, with specks in it of positive charge. So it was thought of as a pudding with raisins in it. The raisins were the positive charge and the pudding was the negative charge. And then we got Rutherford's solar system. So, okay, we have a nucleus and that's got the positive charge and then we've got these atoms going around it and they have negative charge. I'm sorry, electrons going around it. They have negative charge. Uh, a little problem there. Positive and negative attract each other. Why don't the electrons spin into and collapse into the nucleus? Well, uh, Rutherford struggled with that and this young brash scientist in his laboratory, Heisenberg, uh, said, I'm sorry, Niels Bohr, <laughs> said, you know what, we're going to apply this new theory here, quantum theory, and there's a quantum uh, about which the uh, electrons cannot change their energies so that they have to be in these orbits. They cannot be in between and they can't collapse into the nucleus. So then we got the quantized atom. And then we started, uh, we, we, you know, finally got the neutron, but it was off just a little bit. And a little bit is not acceptable in physics. And they thought that for a while they might have to give up on conservation of energy, which is really fundamental. And they didn't want to give that one up. But they got rescued with the discovery of the neutron. And then, uh, you know, we had in the 1960s the proliferation of particles. Every week someone was discovering a new particle. My, my roommate at the uh, at University of Pennsylvania, uh, you know, had one of these student jobs working in the physics lab. And what he was doing is he had these photographic negatives and he had to measure things on the negatives. So... Uh, a certain accumulation of measurements would would determine they've discovered a new particle. And his boss says, I think we've discovered a new particle. <laughs> and my my roommate says, uh, are we going to be famous? <laughs> and his boss says, well, about as famous as the people discovered a new particle last week. <laughs> so so they were they were in trouble. I mean, this just this whole atomic theory thing wasn't working. They just had hundreds and hundreds of subatomic particles discovering new ones every week. It was a mess. And then uh, um, Mary Galman comes up with quark theory that 
there are only a certain of this, keep getting more of them, but there's a certain number of quarks. And the quarks are these fundamental things. And these fundamental things, um, you know, you have a certain number of these quarks in these different arrangements. And that gave you your electrons, protons, neutrons, and other subatomic particles. So there's only a handful of fundamental particles, and you can put them together in different combinations to get all these hundreds of uh, uh, particles they're discovering. Well, um, that lasted a while, but there was still a problem that <clears throat> Einstein's general relativity, which explains gravity, and quantum theory, which had become extremely matured by the um, 1960s, 70s, 80s, were totally incompatible. You cannot put them together. And they contradict each other. And the simplified way of putting it is uh, relativity applies for big things like galaxies, and quantum theory applies for small things like subatomic particles. And I'm going to pick on somebody, but um, I interviewed Carl Sagan before uh, black holes became a really big fad uh, in the 1970s. And the person who sort of put black holes on the map was Hawking. But uh, it became apparent with black holes, we can only understand black holes with quantum theory. And black holes now we understand are fundamental to the big picture. There's a massive black hole at the center of every galaxy. Black, black holes are fundamental to how galaxies form. So we've got to be able to put together uh, general relativity and quantum theory. So I said to Carl Sagan uh, in interviewing him, i got to find that tape. It's a classic. Uh, does, you know, does quantum theory have any, have any relevance here, what we were talking about? He said, no, quantum theory only applies to small stuff. Well, very quickly, shortly thereafter, we discovered quantum theory was fundamental to cosmology, which was uh, Carl Sagan's field. But anyway, uh, the big attempt to do that is uh, string theory, which puts together, <laughs> if you watch Big Bang Theory, there's a point where Sheldon is arguing with, what's her name? The woman physicist. I'm not remembering her name right now. And she's... She's into loop quantum gravity, which comes from the Perimeter Institute and Lee Smolin. And uh, Sh Sheldon is into string theory, although uh, a couple of years ago on the show, he gave up string theory because it's not going anywhere. <laughs> it's not working. But anyway, uh, string theory is an attempt to unify um, quantum theory and... and uh, general relativity. But point being, and, and, and quantum theory is quickly, I'm sorry, string theory is quickly fading. Uh, the point being, this is all about gravity. It's not settled. <laughs> Climate change is settled. Global warming is settled science, but gravity, not settled. The atom, not settled. So what is it about this... Um, what is it about this global warming that it becomes settled science? Well, of course, what they mean 
when I say settled science is that there are two parts to global warming. One part is the science, and <clears throat> no science is ever settled. And particularly global warming, no way. Uh, because global warming, uh, the work they do in global warming, there's two parts to that. One is measuring the temperature of the Earth, uh, or three parts to it. Well, that's hard enough. <laughs> the Earth is pretty big. Well, you can't stick a thermometer <laughs> in the Earth's ear and get the temperature. I mean, what, what do we mean by the average temperature for the year for the planet Earth? What does that mean? Uh, how, how do you come up with that? And, of course, there's an infinite number of ways of doing it. Where do you measure? What measurements? At what elevation? Are you measuring seawater? Are you measuring the air? On what day? What time of day? Where are you doing the measurements? Uh, you know, is it done with satellites? Is it done with ground thermometers? Is it done with buoys? And then when you get all those measurements, what do you do with them? How do you put them together? How do you weight them? You say, well, I got one buoy in the middle of Pacific Ocean. I got to multiply that by a lot because the Pacific Ocean's big. I got one buoy in the Atlantic. The Atlantic's not so big, so I multiply it by a different amount. Well, how do you determine those amounts? And <clears throat> so there's a beautiful book that uh, some of us read uh, years back, and I recommend it for uh, anyone who hasn't read it, you know, do read it. It's uh, Gallic's Chaos. So remember, chaos theory was a big thing. And, um, uh, you know, you hear these things and you get these buzzwords, chaos, buzzwords, chaos theory. Oh, that means that science is not as determinate as it claims to be. Well, um, just to, uh, you know, delve into that for one brief moment, chaos theory means systems that are exquisitely sensitive to initial conditions. And where it comes from is, and I'm not remembering the name of the scientist, but this uh, scientist is doing, um, actually doing weather uh, stuff. And he did, he had a, um, he had a little model set up as a computer for some planets responding to gravity. So, you know, extrapolating outward, the planets are going to spin into this spiral. And so he runs the, uh, he runs the equation. It's all determinate. It's, you know, if you, if you do the equations, this is what you get. If you remember from uh, high school, if you plot a parabola or you plot an ellipse, uh, that formula is going to give you that parabola or that ellipse. And the computer will help you plot it more quickly if you use a graphing calculator, as uh, uh, kids do today. Uh, makes it a lot easier than when we're doing it with graph paper and a pencil. But anyway, um, he runs this, and he gets this pattern that the thing's going to follow. And then he runs it again on a different computer, and it's totally different. It's not a little bit different. It's like one of the particles or planet spins off into a whole other direction and goes flying off the screen in this spiral. Totally different. So, uh-oh, one of my computers has got a problem. And so he runs it again and he looks at it again and he says, there's nothing wrong with the computer and there's nothing wrong with my formulas. And he realized what was going on was these two computers, and pick a number, you go out, 
like six decimal points. And now you round it off. Because a computer can't go infinite decimal points. So at some point you have to round it off. So one computer was using one rule for rounding it off. You know, like if it's, um, if it's five or above, you, you make the previous uh, uh, integer one up. If it's four or below, you make it one less, whatever. But with, you know, the rule for rounding off. You know, like if you're doing pi, 3.14159. Well, it's not 159. It's 159 if you round it off. Um, it's 1.8 dot, 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 dot. <clears throat> so at some point, you have to round it off, unless you're Sheldon. You know, <laughs> in Big Bang Theory, he says, you know, I recited pi to 10,000 places or something like that. And he memorized in the fourth grade or whatever. There are kids who can do that, you know, weird ones. So anyway... Um, the um, um, one computer was using a slightly different rule for rounding. Now, this was out six, seven, eight, nine, ten decimal places. It shouldn't make any difference. It does for certain things. These are systems that are exquisitely sensitive to initial conditions. So you have your initial condition, and then you run the thing, and these tiny, tiny differences can make huge differences in what happens. What do we call that? Okay, gang, what do we call that? It's called the butterfly effect, right? A butterfly flaps its wings in Beijing, causes a hurricane in New Orleans a month later. <laughs> and that's the way it really works. Weather is like that. It's exquisitely sensitive to initial conditions. So anyway... <clears throat> What are we doing with, um, with projecting out global warming? And we are modeling. And we are saying, oh, you know, we can say in 20 years, within a tenth of a degree, what the global average temperature is going to be. They can't tell us when it's going to rain tomorrow. But they can tell us in 20 years that uh, this is what the temperature is going to be. Well, <clears throat> they're relying on the rough overall average. But it turns out a lot of these models are of the chaos sorts. Well, that isn't why, whew, that isn't even why I brought up Glick's chaos. The reason why I brought it up is there's some very complicated stuff going on there in chaos theory, and he does a beautiful job of explaining it for our classic type, I like to consider myself one, the intelligent layperson. In other words, uh, I <laughs> Stephen Hawking was I had the same agent as Stephen Hawking, so my my book agent is Stephen Hawking's agent, and uh, when Stephen Hawking did his book Brief History of Time, he was told by his agent and his publisher, for every formula in your book, you're going to lose half your audience. Nobody knew it was going to be a mega bestseller, and. Uh, launch him into stardom, including on Big Bang Theory. But he deliberately put only one formula in the book, so only lost half his audience. If he had had two formulas in the book, he would have been down to a quarter of his audience. And that one formula is, of course, E equals MC squared, which is a cultural icon. So he's probably safe with that one. But for those of us who can't remember what that S thing is <laughs> from calculus, 
what the hell was that? I did okay in calculus, but that was a long time ago. I don't remember any of it. <clears throat> but anyway, uh, um, for those of us who can't handle the formulas, we need books like Alex uh, Chaos. And he more recently wrote a book called The Information. So information, information theory, uh, computer programming, determinate and indeterminate systems. What is information? Is information fundamental? There are scientists who are now beginning to say, you know, information theory is the fundamental scientific theory. It underlies physics, chemistry, biology, DNA. It's information. And so uh, Gallic wrote this book called The Information. He's a little, he explains why he says the but if you understand what information is, you read that book. It's readable. It's understandable. A, a person who doesn't remember any of their math, like me, <laughs> can understand it. And so I'm, you know, why, is there a book like that on information theory? I'm sorry, on global warming. And, you know, that, that explain how do they make these models? Are we just supposed to take their word for it that the, there's the, Average temperature is going to increase four degrees, and there all the, the the glaciers will melt, and will be twenty feet. Uh, you know, the sea rise will be twenty feet. And okay, they say this, it present it so that we can look at it. So I'm flipping around the internet last night, and for some reason, YouTube decides I would be interested in Bert Rutland, B U R T. R-U-T-L-A-N, the real climate change data. Aviation pioneer Bert Rutland presents the real data on climate change and global warming. The effects of CO2 on the planet are also investigated. Well, I highly recommend that. It's uh, it's pretty long. It's, I think it's almost an hour. But he goes through all of it, and he says, you know, what what— what is this actually saying here? You might recall we were told that in uh, three years the Himalayan glaciers will be gone. Uh, it's already supposed to be four years ago the North Pole ice would be gone. Uh, we were told that we would be in permanent drought. There would be no more snow. Um, everything they've told us hasn't happened. Uh, we were told that the extreme weather conditions— hurricanes, tornadoes, etc., were going to get more violent. For 30 years, they've been getting less violent. Um, and now we've been acclimatized to think every time there is a storm, oh, my God, you know, there's never been a storm before, and now there's a storm. This is due to global warming. Well, um, I mentioned Peter Thiel at the beginning of uh, our show. And he hired a lot of engineers when he was running PayPal. And since then, he's been involved in some other companies. But he also is a VC, venture capitalist. So uh, he funds companies, most famously Facebook. <laughs> if you saw the movie Social Network, <laughs> Peter Thiel uh, Gave Zuckerberg $500,000 for 20% of Facebook. <laughs> so uh, he's doing okay. 
And But his favorite question to ask in an interview is, tell me something you believe is true on which almost nobody agrees with you. What do you believe that nobody else believes? Do you dare believe anything that nobody else believes? Do you think for yourself? And um, my students are wonderful. And we're in a generation of highly educated, highly intelligent, excellently performing students who have had all the originality beaten out of them. They don't dare question anything. And they don't, wouldn't even know how because our education today indoctrinates them with what they should believe that instead of giving them the basic tools, the underlying information and thought tools to be able to do their own thinking. So is there anybody out there thinking about global warming originally? Uh, and so I recommend this video uh, where he says, well, what's going on here? What, what, is, what is data actually showing us? And I'm not taking a position one way or another, uh, but I did a little thinking of my own. You know, we were told that um, for 100,000 years, the temperature never varied more than half a degree and the carbon dioxide was the same. And now the, uh, there's been a, what is it, 30% increase in carbon dioxide and the temperature's gone up 0.8 degrees and this never happened before. How do they measure, you know, 0.8 degrees over the past 100 years? Even if we had great measuring tools today, what, they're getting logs of whaling ships and and somehow projecting averages from that. Um, you know, and then we're told things like <clears throat> there are these islands that have been uncovered by the melting glacier in Greenland that have never been seen before. Then someone comes along and says, here's a map from 1890, shows those islands. They were uncovered in 1890. The glacier goes back and forth. Um, so what are we to believe? And I think we have to start thinking for ourselves including the last ice age was only 10,000 years ago. I mean, the pyramids are 4,000 years ago. Uh, you know, 10,000 years ago isn't that long. Homo sapiens are 100,000 years. 10,000 years ago is uh, quite recent. Well, 10,000 years ago, I was told in the fourth grade when we studied New York, which is where I lived at the time, that New York was under a glacier over a mile high. A mile! A glacier, ice, a mile high. Well, I mean, that's hard to believe, <clears throat> you know, but that's apparently, you know, it's called geology. <laughs> I didn't take geology in college. <laughs> I took physics. <laughs> oh, I don't want to pick on anybody, but in Big Bang Theory... <laughs> There's a scene where they're having the paint gun war, and Sheldon says, geology isn't a real science. <laughs> uh, it was called rocks for jocks. Because <laughs> geology, you could get by by memorizing. Physics, you had to understand. But anyway, uh, so I didn't take geology, but I was told in the fourth grade that there was a glacier a mile high, telling me that 10,000 years ago it wasn't cooler if there was a mile-high glacier sitting on top of New York? 
what are these people, what do they expect us to believe? You know, like we might, you know, have a little bit of uh, awareness ourselves. There's a thing called the Little Ice Age. So, um, <clears throat> the, um, uh, you know, Europe didn't have a summer for like two, three, four years in a row. Hundreds of thousands of people died of starvation from the Little Ice Age. Um, and it's, you know, it's, it's dates are um, debated, but begins in around 1300. And then um, there's one uh, 1650, there's another one 1770 until 1850. So if the world's been getting warmer, are we coming out of the Little Ice Age? And then we have things like uh, change in the uh, ocean. Uh, ocean's going to rise. All our cities going to be underwater. I definitely possible, uh, but I've been living for uh, forty years in the same place, right on the edge of the uh, East River. That's part of the ocean, and I I, I don't have a ruler out there, but uh, you know, it looks about the same as it did forty years ago. I don't see any rise, and then we find out. Well, what do we mean by ocean rise? Well, uh, because the Ice Age is still re retreating. In other words, we had these mile-high glaciers just 10,000 years ago. They're still retreating. They put a lot of pressure on the Earth's crust. And the Earth's crust is still expanding from the release of that pressure. And so that's going to make it look like the ocean is falling. So to state what the ocean's actually doing, you have to correct for that. Well, once you start, you're not just putting a ruler out there, you're making all these thousands of different measurements, and then you're correcting. You know, there's a lot of opportunity for how you do the correcting. So, um, wow, we're almost out of our time. So I want to now get to what I wanted to get to. And that is, I think there's something going on behind all this. And I think that, uh, I don't know if global warming's happening. Um, there's certainly a lot less snow than there was 20 years ago uh, in New York. Maybe there's more snow in other places. But there is something else going on. And that is we are projecting an image that the Earth... The climate, our society, and ourselves are stable. That things are in stasis. And that we want to avoid any disruption to that stability. Um, you know, we, uh, we have this stable situation. And human bad activity disrupts it. So um, I'm thinking about this uh, aversion to instability. <clears throat> and let's think about some stuff we know, that our universe began with a Big Bang. That's only 14 billion years ago. That's not very long ago. I mean, uh, humans, uh, our, our ancestors, you know, hominids, we're around a million years. A billion years is only a thousand million years. 
So only 14,000 times as long as we've been around ago, there was the Big Bang, an event of inconceivable violence. Just a few decades ago, galaxies were thought to form as a slow condensation of gas and dust. Now, no, the process is incredibly violent in involving these massive black holes at the cores, which are swallowing billions of suns and emitting the light of trillions of suns. Galaxies go through collisions that shred structures and toss about stars. And what is a star? What is our sun? It's a continuously exploding hydrogen bomb. Talk about violence. I mean, we're right, we're right next to a continuously exploding hydrogen bomb. Um, blowing elements into the void that then become the material for the formation of new uh, stars. Our, the formation of our planet was violent. Our moon was blown out of the Earth by a collision with an object the size of Mars only four and a half billion years ago. It melted the entire Earth's surface. If, if life had begun before the collision, it had to begin again. Then four billion years ago, there was a rain of destruction from asteroids that melted the surface, uh, surface again. And then 200 million years ago was that asteroid that uh, wiped out all the dinosaurs. Uh, so um, 65 million years ago, another asteroid wiped out uh, the dinosaurs. So the Earth has suffered eras of violent volcanoes, ice ages, most recent being just 10,000 years ago. So, you know, this this Earth is not as stable as we've been told. It's not, you know, like uh, we've thought it to be. And maybe we should be more prepared for uh, things changing around. So, every, you know, every time we have a storm, we're told, oh, uh, that's... Uh, that's due to uh, global warming. That's not normal. Well, of course it's normal, uh, you know, and except that it's there've been less of it for the past thirty years than there've been uh, there've been previously. So uh, I think we're being prepared to think a certain way. We're being prepared to think in terms of a kind of stasis. Let's talk more about this next time and talk more about how we'll, um, we're going to uh, live in our planet. So, this is John LaBelle. This is Visionaries. This is PRN.FM. We're here every Monday. What time? Depends upon where in the world you are. But if you're in New York, it's 10 a.m. <laughs>